Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. This is Kolob. What is wanted? Infants, having been curious and playfully engaged in all things, desire further whatever you got for me by revisiting some of my favorite minisodes in Something Something About a Veil. Keep on listening, then, and your request shall be granted. All for the greater good. About the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Mini sound. Regret. Verb. To feel sad, repentant, or disappointed over something that has happened or been done, especially a loss or a missed opportunity. Like she immediately regretted her words. Regret. A noun, a feeling of sadness, repentance, or disappointment over something that has happened or been done. She expressed regret at Virginia's death. You know, there are probably several different kinds of regret. Constant regret that paralyzes you in a state of despondency probably isn't a very healthy thing. But the kind of regret that's a realization that you actually could have done something better than the way that you did it, well, I think that's pretty useful and a pretty essential form of regret. Failure is always the best way to learn. Retracing your steps till you know. Now there's a certain type of person who takes pride in having no regrets. It becomes some kind of life motto to them and they look at regret as some evidence of personal weakness or failure. And they want to put on a brave, fake face to prove to the world that they aren't a loser. I used to be married to someone like that, and it was unsufferable. Maybe you're one of these people yourselves. If so, my apologies up front, because I'm going to be a little judgy here. But seriously... No regrets. So you're saying that every single thing you've ever done has been the best possible choice that it ever could have possibly been in that situation? Come on. So today is my birthday. Once a year we celebrate with stupid hats and plastic plates The fact that you were able to make another trip around the sun Not the day that we're releasing this, but the day that I'm writing and recording this Happy birthday, what have you done that matters? Happy birthday, you're starting to get fatter Happy birthday, it's downhill from now on Try not to remind yourself your best years are all gone and yesterday, my 13-year-old daughter reminded me that I will now be the same number as her basketball jersey, which she chose because it's one of the lost numbers. You know, 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. Yeah, it's the last one of those. And my daughter still has four years worth of lost numbers to look forward to, but I'm right there at the end. You know, couldn't they have added two more, like 65 or 88? So forgive me, but I'm feeling a little extra self-reflective today. And yeah, I do have some regrets. One pretty big one, in fact, that I've been meaning to talk about here for a while. A regret that if I knew then what I know now, I would have handled very differently. So yeah, I think I'm going to talk about that regret right here. 
right now. Hello? Hey man, what's up? This is the phone call that I wish I would have made 12 years ago. You know how there are certain people in your life you grow up with who really stand out? Okay, hang on a second. That's going to seem a little ironic later. But anyway, you know how there are certain people who place their stamp on your life and help to form the person that you eventually become? I had a friend like that. His name was Kevin Sparks. And from about the age of 11 to 18, I wouldn't say that we were inseparable, but we were pretty close. We went through the whole church and scouting thing together. You know, passing the sacrament, preparing the bread, eating the leftover bread with the peanut butter and jelly that we had smuggled in just for that purpose, uh, blessing the sacrament, collecting fast offerings, going on 50-mile high-adventure hikes. We double-dated together. We hung out at steak dances together. He even married my ex-girlfriend. So Kevin and I were really close, but we sort of lost touch after high school. I went away on a mission, and then I went out of state for college, and then moved basically to the other side of the country for grad school, and started almost a completely new life. And we didn't have email or Facebook back then. I didn't even have a cell phone. Yep, I'm old. So we mostly just had our memories. So what's new, man? Usually, there wasn't much new. When we did talk, we would talk about our past. We would talk about our memories. And we would laugh at all of the practical jokes that we had played on people. Like ordering Domino's pizza for the bangaters. Or calling them and pretending to be the Domino's manager and telling them that 20 pizzas are on their way. And and how do you intend to pay for it? You know, we used to make calls to random people and ask, Is this suicide hotline? And then we'd spend the next several minutes letting them talk us out of whatever it was we were planning on doing. And to our credit, I guess, we never actually made anybody think that they had failed. We played a lot of practical jokes. Way too many to talk about now. And eventually, I grew out of it, pretty much. But Kevin didn't. Maybe because he was a lot angrier than I was. He had a lot more to be angry about. He was probably 28 or 29 years old when he told me about the call that he had made to a local 7-Eleven where he created a bomb scare and how hilarious it was when he drove down and saw the police and the bomb squad combing the place. I always felt a little disappointed in him for that and maybe also a little guilty because when we started growing apart, we grew apart in different directions. I went off to go on a mission and to BYU and he stayed at home and eventually ran in with another crowd and fell away from the church. And 12 years ago, for me, that was a pretty tragic deal. So, how's your dad? This was always a loaded question. It meant that I wanted to talk about other things, deeper things. And talking about his dad was an entryway into that discussion because it was his dad who had reported the near-death experience after their small private aircraft crashed in the middle of the Arizona desert on their way from Thatcher to Mesa. Now, Kevin was five years old when that happened, and he remembered walking away from the wrecked plane and then falling down on the desert floor and then waking up in a hospital bed with his grandma sitting at his side crying. And he asked her, what's wrong? And she told him that he couldn't move his legs. Sure I can, he said. See? And he started to make those phantom motions that felt like movement but wasn't really movement. 
and he remembered the fear that slowly started creeping over him as he began to realize the gravity behind his grandmother's tears. He was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, but that didn't stop him from doing all those things I talked about before. You know, we collected fast offerings in my neighborhood in a little mini car where Kevin held on to the back with a jump rope and we just made a game out of it. And we pulled him in a special cart all 50 miles on that high adventure scout camp and he threw pine cones at us from behind and made whipping sounds like we were horses or mules. Yeah. Now, I think part of the appeal of a lot of the practical jokes that we played were the way that it made people feel uncomfortable when they were confronted with his um, handy capableness. Uh, like his favorite scene in a movie was from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin and Michael Caine when Steve Martin is pretending to be a guy in a wheelchair and he tells this woman, you know, I love you and I think if I thought you loved me too, I'd be able to walk again. Oh, Kevin would use that line and he just thought it was hilarious. So we would do practical jokes like that, like the time at the steak dance where I got in his wheelchair and pretended to be the one who couldn't walk, except during the middle of the song when I stood up and pretty much embarrassed the girl that I'd been dancing with. But Kevin thought it was hilarious. Or one of the times when we did that suicide hotline thing, and a really cheerful, gregarious guy on the other end just kept saying, life is great, totally worth living. Just take up a fun hobby like soccer or football. And Kevin said, but... I'm in a wheelchair. And this guy, without skipping a beat, said, Well, there's always archery. Kevin just cracked up about stuff like that. And when he ran for student body president in high school, his motto was, Don't be a nipple, vote for a cripple. See, he just loved shoving people's faces into this thing. He loved making them squirm. And I think it's because he was, deep down, so angry that he was in this position in the first place. Especially since when he was five years old, he thought that this all might just be temporary. Because this was 1976, and Spencer W. Kimball was God's one true prophet, seer, and revelator on the earth at the time. And he was a family friend from Thatcher, Arizona. So he came to Kevin, and he laid his hands on Kevin's head, and he blessed him that he would be healed in due time. And he promised him that one day he would run and laugh again with other children. So every night, this five-year-old boy would say his prayers and climb into bed, hoping that the next morning would be the day that he would be healed as he was promised. And he did his physical therapy, and he wore his leg braces, and he kept praying and hoping and wondering. And at some point over the years, he just lost hope. And why hadn't it happened? Was he doing something wrong? Was this all still part of God's test for him? Was there something else he needed to be doing better? You know, in his teens, when the allure of running and playing with other children had sort of passed its expiration date, he started hearing the inevitable shoulder-shrugging, well, maybe he meant in the millennium. Oh, right, he'll run and play with other kids in the millennium. Thanks for making that clear, President Kimball. So, as you can imagine, Kevin struggled with his belief. He struggled with a lot of things. He struggled with a lot of pain and undeserved shame. Things just didn't turn out the way that they were supposed to. So, have you talked to your dad recently about that whole vision thing? Yeah, so that uh, near-death experience... Man, that was a great mystery. You know, that was the one thing that kept Kevin doubting his doubts, even long before doubting your doubts was in vogue. 
because Kevin's dad told a story that was pretty remarkable. It was pretty believable in some parts and unbelievable in others, but there were some very interesting hits. So, of course, I'm reciting this to you from memory, and I may be getting some of the details wrong, but Kevin and I talked about this a lot, so I'm pretty confident in what I'm saying. So his dad was given a choice. You can either stay here in the spirit world and be dead, or you can return to earth life and continue to live a full, rewarding life. And sort of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, he was shown what his life would look like with either choice that he made. So... He saw his funeral if he chose to die, and Kevin wasn't there, which made Kevin think that if his dad had chosen to die, that he would have also died too. Now, that never really sat very well with me, and I always reminded Kevin that maybe he was just still in the hospital when the funeral was going on. But Kevin always felt some kind of tie to his dad in that way, that good or bad, his dad was responsible for Kevin's life. Now... Obviously, he chose to return and live his life, right? And the reason he did this was because he was shown that if he did, he and his wife would have five more children, four boys and one girl. And that was huge for them because they had really struggled to have any kids in their marriage. Kevin was adopted, and so was his sister Shannon, and Sarah was a surprise. Now, that was the little group of five that had crashed together in that airplane, and only Kevin and Dad suffered any serious injury. So when Kevin's dad saw a future with five more children, he chose to come back. And true enough to his experience, they all came, four boys and one girl. But the thing that Kevin and I talked about the most was this particular scene that Kevin's dad described where he saw Kevin get married. And he described what Kevin's wife looked like. But of course, he'd never tell him. Not until the time was right, at least. Great Scott! The consequences of that could be disastrous. But when that time came, Kevin's mom pulled him aside and said, you know, I know you're not quite sure what to believe about your dad's experience, but he did describe a tall, slender girl with auburn hair which fit Kevin's fiance perfectly. Now, I don't mean to imply that things were perfect with Kevin's dad. His personality drastically changed as a result of the brain damage that he suffered with the crash, and that made him prone to fits of violence. So there were times when Kevin absolutely hated him and feared him. But of course, he dearly loved him and felt connected to him deep down as well. So it was a terrible conflict, and one that only increased when his mother filed for divorce and kicked Kevin's dad out. Like I said, Kevin struggled with a lot of stuff. So, are you doing anything with the church? No, he normally wasn't. He kind of fit that classic, you can leave the church but you can't leave it alone model. At least where it was so deeply ingrained in his psyche that anytime he was really down or low, he looked back to the church as a means for support. Like, when he divorced his wife, the tall, slender, auburn hair ex-girlfriend of mine after seven years of marriage, that really devastated him. Now, I don't blame her at all for leaving. She really had to get out. Kevin had a lot of demons, and no one knew them better than she did. And Kevin called me after their divorce, and he told me that he was going to get back involved in the church, and he was going to turn his life around, and then he would win her back. See, I was Kevin's church friend. Now, he had a lot of non-church friends, but I think he turned to me about the same times he was turning to the church because he thought I would be proud of him. I really wasn't. Not really. Because I didn't think it was the answer, and I didn't think that it would last. 
and it didn't. So, uh, you're not thinking of doing anything stupid, are you? He was. And if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be? But of course, I was so far outside of his life at this point that I never knew anything about it. Not until it was too late. Is this suicide hotline? Well, knowing you, you probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. I got a call in November 2002 from Kevin's younger sister, and she told me the news. And she asked if I would fly out to Arizona and speak at his funeral. And I did. And it was a very strange experience for me. Now, I hadn't really started going through any formal or official kind of faith crisis at this point. But I did have enough distance between myself and the church to be sickened and terribly disturbed by what I saw. His mom decided to hold his funeral at the chapel in his home ward, the the chapel he never once attended. And the bishop who conducted the funeral didn't know who Kevin was at all. And as I stood and I spoke to the congregation, it was almost as if someone had drawn a line down the center of the chapel, and all of the Mormons were sitting on one side, and all of the non-Mormons the people who really knew and loved Kevin and had been close to him in the last years, they were all sitting on the other side. And they were the ones that you could tell pretty easily with the earrings and the nose rings and the different colored hair. Those were the ones that Kevin's mom couldn't quite look in the eye when she would introduce me as Kevin's best and closest friend ever. An obvious half-truth at best. I was simply the best and greatest Mormon friend that Kevin ever had. And in her eyes, the others didn't count. Now, these were the ones that the bishop seemed to have in mind when he turned Kevin's funeral into a missionary opportunity and began preaching on the virtues of Mormon theology, explaining eternal progression and the plan of salvation like you would to a five-year-old, and carelessly and callously emphasizing the dire need of repentance before one meets their maker, because... After all, this life is the time to prepare to meet God, and those of you on that side of the chapel better get to it before time runs out, because it's not too late for you. You know, that's not the sort of message that you really want to communicate when you're officiating the funeral of a non-repentant, inactive Mormon who just committed suicide. Now, I talked to several people while I was there, and two conversations really stand out. One was with a family friend named Billy, and the other was with Kevin's younger brother, Jake. Now, Billy had also reported a near-death experience at an early point in her life, and she told me that Kevin called her the day before he died, and he asked her to describe to her once again her experience. What happened? And she told him, as she had told him many times before, that she went through a tunnel of darkness and then she emerged into this field of brilliant light. And she saw friends and family and Jesus and she just started running towards them. And Kevin listened to this and then he told her, I'll probably have to crawl. 
Now, his brother told me that a few days before this had happened, he had called him to ask for a priesthood blessing. So, once again, he was turning to the church and seeking comfort. Because he had lost all of his money in a bad real estate deal, he was about to be evicted from his house, he was suffering from an infection that couldn't be treated because he had no money and he had no insurance, and he felt about as rock bottom as a 31-year-old paraplegic could possibly feel. Now, Jake was the one who went to Kevin's house to check on him, and he's the one who found the body. And at some point, before he did it, Kevin had printed out a talk from Neil A. Maxwell. It was an address that he gave that previous conference called Encircled in the Arms of His Love. Now, I've listened to that talk many times since, and I've tried to imagine what may have been going through Kevin's head as he read through it. Brothers and sisters, in the churn of crises and the sinister swirl of global events, True disciples will maintain faith in a revealing, loving God. True disciples will also maintain faith in his atoning Son. He will console us in our afflictions. And, by being converted unto the Lord, will be steadily undergoing a happy and mighty change. Mighty changing, however, is mighty hard work. It's a labor made more difficult by heeding the unflattering urges of the natural man. Imagine. A spirit portion of each of us is actually eternal. Of course we cannot fully comprehend all this right now. Of course we cannot know the meaning of all things right now. Right now. Right now. But we can know right now that God knows us and loves us individually. So, brothers and sisters, what is it that keeps us from knowing and loving Him more? Our reluctance to give away all our sins, thinking instead a down payment will do. So what do I hear when I listen to this? Well, I hear that there's hope. Yeah, there's definitely hope. If you're a true disciple, as opposed to being a false or lazy or half-hearted disciple, whatever that may be. But I get so frustrated when I hear this kind of rhetoric. It's like holding out a handful of candy to a kid and then pulling it back slowly as they start walking towards you because what you really want is for them to just follow you into another room. I mean, all this stuff about God knowing and loving you, that's awesome. That's great. I can totally appreciate that message. But what keeps you from loving Him? Now, here's the big guilt trip. You're too sinful to really love God back. And it's really hard work to show a mighty change of heart to God. So just when you thought that you had a message of hope, don't forget, it's a really steep uphill climb. So let's hope you aren't already buried by a sea of guilt for years of neglecting what the gospel says is righteous living. Now I can just imagine how this message was really not very helpful to Kevin. I I imagine that it only discouraged him more and made the gulf between where he was and where he thought that God was seem even larger. And I may be way out of line here, but for someone who may be thinking of suicide anyway, hearing the message that right here and right now you can't know what it's like on the other side almost seems like a dare. But then again, maybe he did gain some hope from this. Maybe there were messages in here that made him feel less afraid of what he was thinking of doing. The atonement was accomplished, bringing a universal resurrection to billions and billions, lifting all from the grave, regardless of how and when we got there. Now, I don't know how Kevin would have taken it. Did this give him the courage to go through with what he was thinking about doing? 
Did it give him the hope that he would eventually find the peace that he was looking for? I really have no way of knowing what was going through Kevin's mind when he read those words, and I don't know how long afterwards he waited before he pulled the trigger. But I do know that he was one of my best friends for a significant part of my life, and that his life has left an indelible imprint on mine. I know that I love him, and I wish that I would have been there for him when it really mattered, but I wasn't. And that is beyond a doubt one of my greatest life regrets. Now, I want to be clear, I don't blame the church for Kevin's life. I certainly don't blame the church for his death. But at the same time, I can't shut my eyes and ignore the pervasive influence it had on the way that he saw himself throughout his life, his own personal sense of value and worthiness or unworthiness. So, my regrets. You know, I regret that I wasn't a closer friend to him later in his life. I wish that I could have been a confidant for him. I I think that he saw me as a church friend and that he felt ashamed somehow, like he couldn't come to me and open up his true heart and what he was thinking, like he didn't measure up to my expectations of him somehow. I really hope that's not the case, but I'm worried that it might be. I regret, obviously, that he didn't live long enough to get to know me beyond that Mormon identity. I really wish that he had lived long enough to be able to listen to these podcasts or to be involved in any of them himself. He would have really liked that. And I regret that I didn't reach out to his non-member friends at his funeral to go and hang out with them after the Mormonized service and to get to know who Kevin was from the people who really knew him best towards the end. And I also regret that I didn't stand up and publicly challenge that bishop during the funeral because he was so out of line. And it makes me wonder, why do we feel like we have to just sit there out of respect and take it when we hear things that we really don't agree with or that we can see are just flat out wrong? Now, I've only ever done that once in my life. It was the last time I bore my testimony in church, and I really laid it out on the line in direct response to some boneheaded thing that the first counselor had said about the nerve of some people who think that they can reason with their own minds and just pick and choose the things that they hear during general conference. But that is another minisode for another time. So, like I said... I've been wanting to share this story for a long time, and I know it isn't as rowdy or entertaining or funny as a lot of things that we put out on Infants on Thrones, but this is a part of my life and a part of my experience that really means a lot to me. And so I hope that it may trigger something in you that you find meaningful as well. If not, then I guess I've got one more thing to add to my list of regrets. Anyone for the closing prayer? Never knew the reason why 
a man of God Said you'd surely run and laugh again When he gazed into that crystal ball Do you think he saw how it would end? Oh your life in a chair But nobody ever pushed you around And the girl seemed to like you I watched it happen time and time again You'd get close Then they'd say let's just be Too tight, she had to let go. 